want to give a shout out to my sponsor, Herbal Sensations and Sauces, LLC. Herbal Sensations and Sauces was founded and created by a woman named Tasha May. Tasha May came up with the idea to create her own seasonings when her church was on a fast and they could only have things that were organic. She wanted organic food that also tasted good and she realized that organic food wasn't it. She needed something with some flavor. Hence, Herbal Sensations and Sauces was born. I have personally had both her food and her seasonings and both are delicious. Herbal Sensations and Sauces specializes in bringing a robust flavor of seasonings to accent a variety of your food choices from chicken, beef, seafood, vegetables, and pork. You can sauce it up with sensations. Each seasoning is made with truly organic herbs and seeds, which are homegrown in raised beds from free from pesticides. Each seasoning is free from salt, MSG, and contains no GMO or caking agents. If you live in the Dayton, Ohio area, are interested in purchasing, have questions, or just want to check her out, you can find her on Facebook under the name Tasha May, M-A-Y-E. She is currently offering meals that are prepared with her seasonings. Don't forget to sauce it up with sensations. What's up, y'all, and welcome to another episode of Mass Murder Talk. Before I start this episode, I just want to say that I can't believe that it's my fifth episode. I knew that late last year, I wanted to start a true crime podcast. I was really nervous and scared to put myself out there, and I was down on myself. I would say things to myself like, this is stupid, nobody cares, people are going to think you're weird for wanting to talk about mass murder, and my biggest obstacle and fear, my voice. I thought that people would hate my voice, and I have to admit, that's the one thing that I'm still getting used to. So I said all that to say, I'm doing a little giveaway. I'll be giving away $50 in honor of my fifth episode. I know it's not much, but I'm definitely not rich and who knows, maybe somebody can use it for gas or food or Target or wherever. I'm sure it can help somebody somewhere and I think this will be a fun little thing to do. So here's how it'll go. I will say a phrase somewhere in the podcast. The phrase is misery loves company. Once you hear me say misery loves company, email me a timestamp of when you heard the phrase. The first person to email me with the timestamp will be the winner. I only have one rule. You have to be subscribed to the podcast. That's my one and only rule. When you send me the timestamp, you also have to send me a screenshot showing me that you are subscribed. Once again, you can subscribe on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. Subscriptions are free. Send your screenshot and timestamp to janine.read at yahoo.com, J-E-A-N-E-E-N dot R-E-E-D at yahoo.com, all lowercase. I will pop on Facebook Live on Friday, April 1st to reveal the winner. After I've revealed the the winner, I will then cash app him or her. So I just wanted to say good luck to my listeners. So now let's start the episode. This one is a little different because like I said at the end of my last podcast, I wanted to mix it up a little and try to do a little something in addition to my regular content. This episode was requested by my brother-in-law, Lamar May, and I'm familiar with this case as well, so I couldn't pass it up. This episode is about Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown. Yes, y'all, this episode is about a couple, a fucked up and twisted couple. Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown were serial killers whose crime spree started in May of 1984 and ended in July of 1984. 
and is spread across six states in the Midwest. Their crime spree resulted in three kidnappings, 14 armed robberies, and eight deaths. Let's start with some background on Alton Coleman. Alton Coleman was born November 6, 1955 in Waukegan, Illinois. Coleman's mother was a prostitute and she worked three jobs. When Alton was an infant, she threw him in the garbage can, but he was saved by his grandmother. That's crazy to me because his mother and grandmother lived in the same house. According to a minister, the new Alton from birth described his upbringing as a bad environment. He dealt with rejection. He was also known to see drug use, prostitution, and sexual abuse. As he was growing up, he was diagnosed with mixed personality disorder, antisocial, narcissistic, and obsessive features. He had additional diagnosis, including epileptic spasms, psychosis, and borderline personality disorder. He had a slew of issues. His peers would often call him pissy because he would often wet his pants. According to a friend of Alton's, he knew that he was different growing up. I read things about Coleman being gay and that he was into voodoo and he was bisexual and that he was willing to engage in sex with anyone at any time and that he used to dress up in women's clothes. But as I was doing my research, I wasn't able to confirm any of those things. With his upbringing, it's not surprised that he was a delinquent and joined a gang early in his life. Coleman ended up dropping out of school in the ninth grade and was never able to hold a regular job. He was very well known to law enforcement because he had been charged with six sex crimes between 1973 and 1983. At one point, his sister even went to the police department to report that Coleman had attempted to rape her eight-year-old daughter, his own niece. Three weeks later, she went to court to have the charges dropped. She was quoted saying, it's a misunderstanding. A lot of families go through that and it doesn't make any difference now. Um, excuse me. No, they don't. And what does that mean? It doesn't make any difference. It definitely makes a difference. That shit is not normal. Just the fact that she would even say that makes me think that his family was afraid of him. Two of his cases were dismissed and Coleman pled guilty to lesser charges and was acquitted twice. He was scheduled to go to trial on May 30th, 1984 in Illinois on charges of rape of a 14 year old girl that he had held at knife point. He fled before his court date, and that's when the killing spree started. So, it's pretty safe to say that dude had a fucked up start right out of the womb, especially if his mother was a prostitute and drug user. I have to admit, though, it's kind of sad when you hear stories of kids having to grow up like that because the kid didn't ask for that kind of life. He was born into it. But at the same time, he knew right from wrong. All right, so let's talk about Deborah Brown. Deborah Brown was also born in Waukegan. She was born November 11th, 1962. Her background was very different from Coleman's though. She was one of 11 children. She was from a stable home and had no prior criminal record. Brown was diagnosed as mentally challenged. Her IQ was in the range of 59 to 74 and the average IQ is between 90 and 110. So as we can see, her IQ was very low. She suffered from head trauma as a child and was described by a psychiatrist as a dependent personality. She met Alton in 1983 when she was engaged to another man. She eventually decided to leave her fiance and move in with Col Coleman's family and provide home care for his grandmother. So as we can see, this is about to be a match made in hell. It's about to be some bullshit, but stay with me, y'all. It's going to get dark and intense. 
So I'm guessing during the time that she started taking care of Alton's grandmother is when their relationship started. At this point, Deborah was 21. Their relationship was described as a master-slave relationship, and it would make sense considering Deborah is mentally challenged and has a dependent personality. The couple targeted mostly African-Americans because they felt they could blend in better with those environments. Coleman committed his first murder when he killed nine-year-old Vernita Wheat from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Coleman befriended her mother by introducing himself as a nearby neighbor. He had visited her and her children for a few weeks, and on May 9, 1984, the mother gave permission for Vernita to go with Coleman to his apartment to pick up some stereo equipment, but Coleman and Vernita never returned. On June 19th, her badly decomposed body was found in an abandoned building in Waukegan, Illinois. Her cause of death was ligature strangulation, and it was also proved that she was raped. I couldn't find any info on where Deborah Brown was during the murder, but she must have been involved somehow because she was charged. On May 31st, Coleman befriended a man in Waukegan named Robert Carpenter and spent the night at his house. The next day, he borrowed Robert's car so that he could go to the store, but Coleman never came back. I consider him lucky. Alton could have killed him too. So Coleman and Brown have killed a nine-year-old girl in one state already. Now, because they've killed a little girl in Wisconsin, the couple run to Indiana and Michigan. By now, a little time has passed and the FBI realized that Alton Coleman had taken Vernita across the state line. They got involved and put a warrant out for him. As I stated earlier, Coleman was very well known to law enforcement and they knew what he was capable of. Coleman, of course, goes into hiding and he and Brown move to Gary, Indiana. Let's keep going, y'all. Shit really starts to get crazy. The couple lay low for about two weeks when on June 18th in Gary, Indiana, the couple encountered two little girls, seven-year-old Tamika Turks and nine-year-old Annie Hillard. The girls were on their way home from the candy store when the couple tricked the little girls into a secluded part of the woods by telling them that they wanted to play a game. Once the couple got them where they wanted them, They took off Tamika's shirt, ripped it into small pieces that they used to tie the girls up and gag them. Tamika started crying, and when she did, Brown held her nose and mouth while Coleman brutally stomped on her chest. After he had stomped on her and she had stopped moving and making noise, Coleman carried her a short distance away and left her for dead. Coleman and Brown then forced Annie to perform oral sex on them both, and Coleman raped her, but she was still alive. Brown and Coleman then choked Annie, and she was unconscious when she woke up. They were gone. Annie somehow miraculously survived, and thankfully she was found by a passerby. Thank God she survived. They obviously thought that she was dead. I couldn't imagine these two crazy motherfuckers leaving her alive on purpose. Annie was taken to a hospital. Her cuts were so deep that her intestines were protruding into her vagina. I'm not going to go into graphic detail about that. I'm sure we can all imagine what that was like. Tamika was found dead in some nearby bushes, strangled with an elastic strip of bedsheet. During the investigation, the same fabric was found in an apartment shared by Coleman and Brown. Tamika's body was found later that day, June 18, 1984. Tamika's mother was forced to move to Minneapolis because the memories of what happened to her daughter were just too painful, which I'm sure we could all completely understand. First off, dude, what the fuck is wrong with you? 
who decides to stomp on a nine-year-old girl? I don't know why, but that just really irked my soul. And poor Annie, she was never the same. To this day, she suffers from severe headaches and screaming fits. Second, y'all, I gotta say, this is some scary shit. Could you imagine your daughters go to the store to buy some candy, as most kids do with that age, and you find out that your child was raped and even worse, murdered? That is seriously a scary fucking thought. So at this point, we're still in Indiana, but we're also in Michigan. Stay with me, y'all. I know it's a little confusing. On the same day that Tamika's body was found, a 25-year-old woman named Donna Williams of Gary, Indiana, disappeared. Williams was reportedly also befriended by Coleman. Williams' badly decomposed body was discovered in Detroit, about half a mile from where her car was found. She had been raped and killed by ligature strangulation. At this point, I think they are just killing for the thrill of killing. So we're still in Michigan for a little bit. Let's continue on. Coleman and Brown survived by befriending Good Samaritans and later turning on them. They would stay with them for a few days, get money from them, then assault and rob them and steal their cars. On June 28th, Coleman and Brown entered the home of Mr. and Mrs. Palmer Jones of Dearborn Heights, Michigan. Coleman handcuffed Mr. Palmer and beat him severely. His wife was also attacked. Coleman ripped their phone out of the wall. Remember, this is when people still had landlines. They stole their money and car. I know it's a messed up situation, but at least the couple didn't kill them. The couple eventually make their way to Ohio. On July 5th, Coleman and Brown arrive in Toledo, Ohio. Once again, Coleman befriends a woman named Virginia Temple. Temple had several children. Virginia had an eldest daughter, a nine-year-old girl named Rachel. Out of the blue, Virginia stopped communicating with her family. Her family became so concerned that they went to check on her and found her children at home, alone, and scared. The family also noticed that one of Virginia's bracelets was missing. Virginia and Rachel's bodies were later discovered in a crawl space. Their cause of death was strangulation. Virginia Temple's bracelet was later found in Cincinnati, Ohio, under the body of a 15-year-old teenager named Tony Story, who was reported missing on July 12, 1984, when she never came home from school. A classmate of Tony's testified that she saw her talking to Coleman the day she disappeared. Her decomposed body was found eight days later. She had been strangled to death. As we know, the FBI was already on Coleman's ass. But with all these murders, he was added to the 10 most wanted list. He was a special addition to where he was number 11. The FBI was not playing. They wanted him caught. So at this point, we're up to five murders. We're still in Ohio. Let's keep pushing. On the same day as the Temple murders, Coleman and Brown entered the home of Frank and Dorothy Duvendack in Toledo, Ohio, and bound them with electrical cord. The couple stole the Duvendack's money and car. Mrs. Duvendack's watch was also stolen and later found under another victim. It's surprising that the couple actually spared their lives. Later that day, Coleman and Brown visited the home of Reverend Millard Gay and his wife Catherine in Dayton, Ohio. Now get this, the couple stayed with the Gays for a few days and on July 9th went to a religious service with them. What in the hell? 
you know, you have got to be seriously fucked up to do all that you did and then turn around and attend a religious service. I guess they did it so that they could kind of keep the focus off of them. Maybe figured if we don't go, it's going to look suspicious. Um, I'm guessing. The next day on the 10th, the gays dropped a couple off in downtown Cincinnati. Once again, at least Coleman and Brown didn't kill them. Things obviously used to be different back then because people damn sure aren't as friendly and trusting today. At this point, the couple didn't want to draw any more attention to themselves because they biked to Norwood, Ohio at about 930 in the morning. Less than three hours later, they drove away in a car that belonged to a married couple named Harry and Marlene Walters. They left Harry unconscious, but his wife was raped and beaten to death. When Walters testified at trial, he said Coleman and Brown were there to discuss the purchase of a camper, and that's when Coleman hit him in the back of the head with a wooden candlestick. The force of the blow broke the candlestick and drove a chunk of bone against Mr. Walters' brain. He wasn't able to remember much after that. The Walters daughter came home around 345 and found her father at the bottom of the basement steps, barely alive, and she realized that her mother was dead. Both Harry and Marlene had ligature marks around their throats and electrical cord around their bare feet. Her mother's hands were bound behind her back and her father's hands were handcuffed behind him and her mother's head was covered with a bloody sheet. The coroner determined that Marlene had been bludgeoned 20 to 25 times during the assault. She had 12 lacerations that covered her face and scalp. Some of them were made with a pair of vice grips. The coroner also discovered that the back of her skull was smashed to pieces and parts of her skull and brain were missing. They also found shards of broken glass from a bottle and bloody footprints made by two different shoes in the basement. The Walter's car, money, jewelry, and shoes were stolen. Coleman and Brown left behind two bikes, clothes, and shoes. It may be me, but this one sounds much more violent, like there was an anger behind it. I mean, I don't know if this couple tried to fight back and Coleman and Brown didn't like it and they got angry. I'm not really sure. I know it's a lot and it's a crazy story, y'all, and it seems like it's never ending, but we're getting there. Two days later, the Walters car was found abandoned in Lexington, Kentucky. The couple then kidnapped O-Line Carmichael. He was a Williamsburg, Kentucky college professor. The couple drove back to Ohio with the victim locked in the trunk of what I guess is his car. But with these two crazy ass people, there's no telling. It could have been anybody's car at this point. On July 17th, the couple abandoned the stolen vehicle in Dayton, Ohio, with Carmichael still in the trunk. He was later found and rescued by authorities. At this point, Coleman and Brown make their way back to the home of the gays in Dayton. This time, they accosted the couple with guns, and by now the Reverend knew that Coleman was a fugitive. And the Reverend asked Coleman, why you want to do us like that? Why you want to do us like this? And Coleman responded, I'm not going to kill you, but we generally kill where we go. Coleman and Brown left the Reverend and his wife unharmed, but the couple took their car and headed back towards Evanston, Illinois. Along the way, they steal another car in Indianapolis that belonged to 75-year-old Eugene Scott, and they kill him. He was their last victim. This story is fucking with me mentally, but we have some good news coming. 
Three days later, Coleman and Brown were arrested in Evanston. The couple walked across an intersection and an old neighbor of Coleman's recognized him and drove to a gas station to use a payphone to call the police. The couple were sitting on empty bleachers in a park when the police started to approach Coleman and Brown tried to make a slick getaway towards the rear of the park. Two officers caught her before she was able to exit the park, searched her and found a loaded gun in her purse. While Coleman was being searched, they found a steak knife that he had had hidden in between two pairs of socks he had on. The pair were taken into custody without incident, transported to the Evanston Police Department, and they were both identified by their fingerprints. I guess misery loves company because those two were in it together to the end. At this point, Coleman and Brown are being held in jail and both are facing the death penalty. Obviously, they're wanted in several states, but it was ultimately decided that the couple would go to court in Ohio because Ohio would implement the death penalty the fastest. Ohio convicted Coleman and Brown, and they were both sentenced to death. Coleman spent 16 years and five months on death row in Ohio's Mansfield Correctional Facility. He was executed by lethal injection on Friday, April 26, 2002, at Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville, Ohio. From what I could find, Coleman never really expressed remorse for what he had done. Deborah Brown was also sentenced to be executed in the state of Ohio. In her first trial, she expressed no remorse. She sent a note to the judge and it read in part, I killed the bitch and I don't give a damn. I had fun out of it. I'm not sure which victim she was talking about. Brown got lucky in 1991 when her sentence was commuted to life in prison. Her sentence was commuted because of her low IQ scores and the court believed that Coleman was influencing her actions. Brown is currently serving her sentence without the possibility of parole in the Dayton Correctional Institution in Dayton, Ohio. She finally expressed remorse when she apologized to the victim's families in a video in 2005. As many of you know, I was born and raised in Dayton, Ohio. I was a teenager when all this was going on. Coleman was often referred to as the boogeyman. I remember when people would say that and it was scared the shit out of me. It still kind of does. My parents would tell us that we couldn't stay out late or we couldn't go anywhere by ourselves. So this case definitely gives me some personal feelings. And honestly, I feel like anybody who didn't get caught in Alton's past should consider themselves lucky. Well, I know that was some crazy shit and I know it was a lot. I really can't ask what you would do in that situation because you would never know when it was coming. If you do have an opinion on what you would do, let me know. Do you think any of this could have been avoided? How do you feel about Deborah? Do you think she was a willing participant or do you think Coleman had his hooks in her from the start? Do you think that the police should have done something faster? Tell me what you think and how you feel about the episode. I really don't have an opinion on this episode. For me, this one is all about mental illness, upbringing, and environment. Once again, we see mental illness come into play, and in this case, it's like they fed off each other. Well, I want to thank you all for listening. Don't forget about the giveaway, y'all. And I will talk to y'all in the next episode. Deuces.